anything other, I don't get to assimilate into anything other than the black experience. For me to be given the opportunity to be a storyteller and to tell narrative of people in my community that look like me, I wear that as a badge of honor and a huge responsibility. And I am grateful for the gift of art, if nothing else, just for that. I'm Michael Kenneth Williams, and this is the timeline of my career. My way into Hollywood was through the music video world. I had actually started out as a background dancer, and shortly after, I was attacked and, and sliced in my face. Directors and photographers found me um, interesting looking, and before I knew it, I was being asked to portray darker characters in music videos. Having had done a certain amount of videos in New York City, your Polaroid picture tends to litter the various production companies around town. Pac had gone to the office for whatever reasons, and he saw this picture. And they were still casting the role of his little brother, the character of High Top. And he saw my picture, and he was like, yo, he told Julian, go find this guy. He looks thugged out enough to play my little brother. I came in, I auditioned, and I got the part. Working with Pac on the set was crazy. Although I was older than him, I was in complete awe of him. And I, I found myself, when he would come on the set, I would just get quiet and just listen and watch him. He was so fascinating. One day, the director kept calling him to set, and the shot was not quite ready. He got a little annoyed. He was like, you know, guys, listen, when I come to set, I come in character, so when you call me... Be ready to shoot. I don't want to sit around on set. I could, I'd rather be in my trailer. That happened like one more again, and he lost it. <laughs> he cursed everybody out on set and said, I told you, when you, when you, when you call me to set, your MFs better be ready. And he stormed on set. And I learned that day, um, don't come to the set to get ready. Come ready. I'm going to the army with a safe. When that film came around was being produced, I was actually still a, a background dancer. I remember being on the road. I was in California, getting ready to go on to do our second show at this pavilion. I was with a recording artist uh, by the name of Maya. I just checked in with my manager at the time, and I was like, you know, just see what was going on. I was my acting career was already on the way, and she freaked out. She was like, "Where are you?" I mean, I'm on the road. I'm in Cali. She goes, well, I don't know what you're doing out there, but you better have your butt back in New York City on Monday, by Monday morning. And I was like, why? And she was like, Martin Scorsese wants to meet you. So I was like, holy crap. Uh, I went to the uh, uh, stage manager, a music director, actually, a uh, brother named Earl. I asked him to spot me the money I needed to catch the flight back for this audition. I asked him to keep this between us and I was gonna tell uh, the boss that I had a family emergency. And in my mind, I wasn't lying because had I lost this role, it would have been a family emergency. <laughs> but I remember being in a room with Marty and there were three uh, feature roles that anyone in my position could have auditioned for. Two of them were good, but 
one of them was great. I went in there and he, they were all three different emotions in the same scene. And he asked me to play all three. And just like that, I went to three different emotions. And the last one was of a man dying on the floor on, in Times Square. And when I finished, he jumped up, he looked at me, and he says, give the part, anybody wants. You're a great actor. And he gets up and he walks out the room. I swear to God, my t-shirt got like, like soaking wet from sweat. I was like, wait, hold up. Did the Martin Scorsese just say that? I was a great actor. Needless to say, I hung my dancing shoes up after that one. <laughs> hold this. If you let go, I swear I won't kill you. When I got the role on The Sopranos on HBO, I felt like I had arrived. Um, you know, all of the little extra parts or the featured extra parts, they were paying off now. You know, the role on The Sopranos, it meant a lot to me because, um, you know, I was a huge fan and uh, of James Gandolfini and Edie Falco and the rest of the family over there. But it was also apparent that not a lot of uh, people of color got to be on The Sopranos. And if you did, you ended up floating with the fishes, right? So um, the fact that they had actually come on that show and tell this narrative and not just be a pawn that got killed off. I got to portray what a good father looks like to, to raising a, a, a daughter in the projects. Like, you know, to just that alone, that that exists was was monumental to have the opportunity to tell that narrative on the show like The Sopranos. When Omar Devon Little came into my life, I was in an extremely uh, dark place. I was uh, in debt, borrowing money for my family to pay my rent in the projects. 9-11 had come and gone, and I was lost. I remember I was sitting down in my living room with my cousin, a.k.a. Sean Price, and we were, you know, smoking weed, drinking beer. We do what we would normally do, put the TV on but mute it and play music, and we usually either play spades or game of chess. And here comes my episode of The Sopranos. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. There's something wrong with this picture. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at myself on television, but I'm sitting here, you know, kind of like really not being productive with this with this, this gift, with this, this opportunity. And I went back to my mom and I said, you know what, I think I need to give show business one more shot. And so I, I put out this package. I got a new headshot, new resume. They were doing this thing called reels. I had to create a reel. And I sent out this package. I think about the second week in January, I would be getting, the phones would be ringing off the hook that, you know, Michael K. Williams is back. That kid with the guy with the scar, he's back. And, um, that wasn't happening either. And I sunk into a very, very dark place. Really bad depression. I was in my apartment and I get a phone call. My mother, she says, um, come downstairs, you got a fax. And that fax was from Alexa Fogel. It was the role of Omar, the breakdown. I went in and I read one time for that character. She sent the tapes in to David Simon and Nina Noble and Ed Byrne. Next thing I knew, I was being called to report to Baltimore uh, for work. 
during the process of, of making the why, I was so excited. You know, I was just so happy to have a job. I felt like my dreams were coming true. And I was really excited to be amongst what I consider greatness. Uh, Wendell Pitt, Sonya Song, Wood, Wood Harris. Like, they was already doing it, you know. Um, you know, J.D. Williams. These are people I, I was just watching on television. So I was happy. And then we had season one in the can. And I just knew that this was a black thing. Like, you know, we made it. We got a good black TV show. And we coming back next year. And then here come David Simon with his beautiful, crazy, twisted mind. And he threw us into um, season two. And I remember going to him saying, you know, so so why is it that every time black people make something hot, you take it and then you're going to turn this into a white show? What, what's, what's up with that? And he looked at me and he chuckled. And he says, you know what, Michael? He said, if we went right back to the projects and to the, to the corners in season two, he said, it would make your world seem extremely small. He said, trust me, I got, I got you. And then we now know season three and four, five came and he tied this whole world in. But it was in season three when I started to realize that, oh, this is not about me. This is not, this is not about my career, how much screen time I thought I should have gotten or, you know, what I thought the world should do, how I thought the show should go. It had nothing to do with me. And in fact, it had everything to do with it. I was just a small part of something great, this great tapestry, this great narrative of social issues that is wrong things that are wrong in our country, not just in the black community. This is not just a Baltimore story. This is going on in every hood, in every city, in every state around these United States. And The Wire was a love letter to our nation, like a blueprint to show where we're broken in hopes of fixing what is wrong. You know, I started looking at the way people, and particularly in my community, would come and it wasn't just oh, that TV show was fly, or you on that dope TV show, it was like, thank you. Ew! Be strong. South Africa filming a, a TV series for I believe NBC called The Philanthropist. I was working with the likes of uh, James Purefoy, Nev Campbell, Jesse Martin, um, and a whole slew of other people. Man, we were having a great time filming down there. The problem was for me, I was probably having a little bit too much of a good time. I think for those who know, you know. And um, I remember saying to myself, um, Dag, Mike, I think if this show gets picked up and I have to keep coming back down here, if I don't change the way I'm living, I will probably die down here. The next week, I get a call that this new TV show on HBO called Boardwalk Empire is looking for me. And here we go. Martin Scorsese is one of the producers. So I'm like, nah. I said, no, that's, that's, you playing trick. That's, that's, that's too good to be true, right? So I got the call. And I said, okay, yeah, right, whatever. I'm not going to get that. I'm not even going to waste my time with that, right? So, like, a week or so passed, my agent calls me back. And she's like, if you don't at least put your name in the hat, 
You know what I mean? I was like, yeah, all right, close mouth, don't get fed. I feel you. So I went, I got a camera, I called uh, Nev. I said, yo, Nev, would you read these lines uh, with me? She goes, yeah. I send it in. That's how I got Borg Empire. Because <laughs> I ain't heard one peep by it till now. The India Fest. <laughs> yeah, that's what they thought. He went to Little Frankie for some money. He would loan it to him. Booking that role was, was real special to me for um, for a personal reason. Um, the opportunity to work with Mark Wahlberg. Years ago when he was in the music business, you know, he was Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch, he and I shared the same manager. As I started to transcend into acting, a young lady, um, Judy, she worked at the management office and, started, and would take on other acts under the umbrella she hired me to choreograph one of the acts you know mark was already out there as a force to be reckoned with in hollywood and i remember saying man my actor career is really taking off i'm getting these extra parts on the regular basis right and you know i could see it in a couple of years i want to do a movie with mark Wahlberg. she chuckled and she says just take your time mike you know like you know, <laughs> burst your gasket just yet and um 10 years later here i am doing the movie with mark Wahlberg. it was confirmation of the power of belief and the power when you say something and you work towards it you know manifest no the terms weren't acceptable but you're into me and i ain't fannie mae ain't no bailouts <laughs> i don't know thought maybe you might have something to say sort of like welcome what kind of fucked up name is Gertrude? You a half-breed? Excuse us, please go on and get yourself something to eat, Bessie was also a monument for me to be alongside my little sister, as I prefer to her Dana, but the rest of the world knows her as Queen Latifah. I've known Dana since um, she was 17 years old. I remember when she first told me, she swore me to secrecy. We were in my studio apartment, again in my projects, we were singing Prince Adore. And when it came time to the high notes, I remember it sounding like two wounded dogs. She looked at me, we started laughing, and she looked at me, she goes, yo, Mike, don't say nothing. I says, what? She goes, oh, I'm about to get a record deal. That was the summer of, what, 88? So to actually have that opportunity to work with her on that level was monumental. But make no mistake, I bust my ass for that audition. Like, she, she don't play that her and Shaquem, they don't play that, not even a little bit. And Shelby, I mean, I wanted this role so bad. I remember on the third callback, y'all, i known this girl for 20 years, and I had to go to three callbacks. In the audition in the waiting room, you know, I stuck to my basics. I went in character, you know, clothing. I'm in top coat with the hat and, you know, the hard bottoms. That was the intent, and that was the drive and that was the grind that I put towards uh, obtaining that role. I needed to earn that for myself. What the hell is wrong with you? I know you got your side pieces, but why you gotta rub them in my face? <laughs> Little man. Why the green one? Because orange means violent felon. That role, it blindsided me for, uh, a number of reasons and then we, we we filmed in these 
these amazingly built sets that really resembled prisons. There wasn't a lot of um, fanciness about the place. The whole set, the whole vibration, you know, felt like prison. That that weighed on me, and it was somewhere, you know, halfway through in production, I realized that I am I'm getting a glimpse of what my nephew uh, Dominic Dupont who served 20 years of his young adult life incarcerated, I started to get a glimpse of what his life was like when he was behind bars. That was a, a very frightening and difficult process to, um, to experience. There was definitely um, some moments that I, I, um, I got tripped up. What is reality and what is, what is fiction? The emotional aspect of what that narrative was waking up in me, I wasn't really prepared for it and woke up of personal traumas and past experiences that uh, were very difficult to navigate through in the production of this. But, you know, thank God we had the art to, to put it into. <laughs> kind of predisposes to judge in a way that's not to your advantage. Denying that baptism made the slaves equal to whites. That's ma'am. And just as child abuse passes from one generation to the next, so does spiritual abuse. I had real facts to, to pull from. Even more so, I had the man himself, uh, Ken Jones, to actually converse with uh, and talk to and to um, to just to study. I consider him an American hero. You're talking about uh, a dark-skinned man of color. In the Navy in the 70s, the, the racism he must have faced, having to hide his homosexuality and the homophobia, being in love with a, with a white man, having to come home, surviving all of that, and then having to fight his next war, which was gay rights and HIV AIDS, the spread of HIV AIDS, and to look at him having had survived all of that. He's a pretty awesome dude. Uh, and someone that just uh, reeks of regalness. And to have the opportunity to tell his story, um, I jumped at it. Turning the oppressed into an oppressor. The educated over the undereducated. Local barbecue at this spot, Fly Rise. Show me a little Southern hospitality. So we're about to get it in, Houston style. I get a message that Spike Jones wants to see me. And I was like, don't say no to Spike Jones, right? That process was eye-opening for me. I remember on the episode of The Lean, the, you know, the you know the Sizzy episode, and I asked the most generic question that came from such an ignorant place. I asked his brother, I says, um, so who inspired you to drink lean? And he says, excuse me, motherfucker, I started this. And I was like... Uh-oh, and, and he took huge offense. It's like asking Barry Gordy, so who hired you at Motown? Mm -hmm. You know, he kind of chin-checked me, you know, verbally, and I learned something that day. I said, you know what, Michael, if this is going to work, you have to let go of everything and remember that you are not the sharpest knife in the drawer. <laughs> and what happened was I stopped trying to act like I knew what I was talking about, and instead I started to connect. I started to compare my life and my past with their stories, and we start to have a dialogue as opposed to an interview. You know what I mean? And that's when the magic happened. I just happened to bring my appetite. <laughs> I'm hungry as a motherfucker. Baby, around here, we fix everything but a broken heart. Well, I, I can't see a damn thing. Go 
Looked like raisins that were born after you went in. Very funny. The thing about Happen Leonard that really stuck out to me was, um, number one, the writing. The world that this writing lived in was so unique, and it was nothing like I'd ever done before. And it was my old friend, James Pierboy. It was an opportunity to show that a white man and a black man can be complete equals and can be brothers and can have, if not the same, a very similar human experience. I knew at that point there was no other white man in Hollywood that can take that journey with me better than James. I didn't have to get to know him. A lot of the things that, that happened, Leonard spoke about, the difference on politics and, you know, the, the way they would argue. James and I had that relationship already. We talked like that already. And so having that friendship, having that, that relationship, you know, we just brought that over into, into the character, which made it that more dynamic. So what's this plan to Howard anyway? They just don't want to do it like they did in the 60s, that's all. That's what's up? Oh, yeah, you see that? Yeah, he's released Gary Ward. He's a two-time All-Star. Yeah, just like you. This was a, a one of those, I gotta have this moment. Um, I'll do anything. Um, the main reason was because I knew the story personally. Born and bred in, in New York City in Brooklyn. I remember when this, was, when this happened, and I also remember knowing that it could have easily have been Central Park 6. Although I was older, than them, I was also living a very at-risk life in the streets of New York. I jumped at it, you know. Um, this is also a time where my personal past and, I guess, for lack of a better words, my reputation in the industry was starting to catch up to me. I met with Ava and we had a great lunch. We had a great talk about the character. So after the meeting was over, you know, I had finished my burger. I thought we was good. She goes, no, no, sir, I'm not done talking to you. I'm like, what's up? She goes, so, um, so what's up with you? I'm like, uh, uh, what do you mean? She goes, no, what's up with you, man? You heard you was a bit of a loose cannon. You okay? What's going on? And, um, I, you know, I knew exactly what she was talking about. And I also knew that I would lose if I lied to her. That would hurt me if I did not come clean. And so I did. I remember leaving that meeting saying that if I get this opportunity, I'm going to blow this shit out the water. I'm going to be 110% present. I'm going to relate to every living thing. I don't care if it's a fly on that set. I'm going to relate to it. Ava renewed my vows with the reasons why I became an artist in the first place. When they see us, renewed my vows with why I became an artist in the first place. It's 20 past 12. A watch could keep you on track. You're listening to Vanity YouTube, the life career of the late great Michael K. Williams, Omar on the Wire. The world that Lovecraft Country lives in is we are looking at 
the American experience through this black family. They've already survived the Tulsa massacre in 1921. They then moved to Chicago, the south side of Chicago, which is within itself kind of like moving to a war zone. And all of this is happening during Jim Crow America. So this is who they are when we meet them. And we follow them on their quest to find out who they are, who they are as a family. What is their legacy? What will they leave behind for their next generation? And they're trying to mend as a family. They're trying to heal old wounds and find ways to forgive each other, all while dealing with this horrifying monster that looms over them called racism. I think this project is super timely for the times that we find ourselves in right now. I do believe what the late great John Lewis said, which is, although we have far to go, we've come a long way. I saw that evidence in the protests for the murder of George Floyd, the diversity that was in those streets from white, black, male, female, young, old, gay, straight, Hasidic, Hispanic, everyone, Asians, everyone was in them streets chanting justice for George Floyd. And, you know, that, that was nothing I definitely had never seen before on that level. What's happening right now is we're looking at ourselves. We're, we're being stripped down naked to see exactly who we are as a nation. And in that, I'm reminded that, you know, America's a baby. We're still so young. You know, we're, we're, we're a baby with a very, very big, noisy rattle, but yet still a baby. So when we look at a black family today in regards to how poverty and community, you know, um, the breakdown of community, how all these things are put into play, we get glimpses of that in the in the narrative of Lovecraft country. I think this is a brilliant time. And, and for me as an artist and an actor, what a great opportunity to have this piece of art, to be a part of this piece of art making that we can hold up as a mirror for us to take a look at ourselves as a nation. I think it's it's very timely. just a, you know, a, one of the extras, one of the background uh, kids. Like, I might have snuck in a couple lines. Uh, I was definitely an under five uh, player at that time. And I was a bully. I was bullying Tony uh, during one of his uh, therapy sessions. Uh, and it was a flashback. He was just, like, kind of talking about his childhood and, I guess, how he used to get bullied on the boardwalk. And I was one of those bullies. And at that point, I think the most exciting thing about being on set, the fact that I was not in school, I think it was one of the first times that I got a chance to skip school to go to the city and work. At that time, The Sopranos, I mean, we didn't know that it was going to be, you know, as epic of a show as it is today. The Wire for me was was a very pivotal moment in my career. First time I auditioned for uh, Alexa Fogel, winning for Bodie at first. I read for him, 
And I was too young, so they brought me back the next day for, for Wallace, and I ended up booking the role. Again, another one of those shows, and I guess characters that in its first season, you never knew that it was going to actually be, were actually supposed to be canceled after season one, and they got renewed. I take pride in Wallace because, you know, I, you know, being an OG of the show, you know, one of the original cast members, uh, even though I got killed off towards the end of the season, it seemed to be, a, you know, a death on, on television that, that resonates with a lot of people even today. I stuck with the where, Where's Wallace shout-outs you know, as I'm walking, you know, uh, walking through the street. I think a lot of the right people watched that show at that point in my career. You know, a lot of casting directors, a lot of producers, a lot of people in powerful places that, you know, I guess became fans, you know, at, at a young age. So when I did audition for the next show or got a chance to, you know, take general meetings and stuff like that, it was always a lot of love. So that went a long way. One of the things on The Wire is that nobody was safe. Everybody can go. I guess the, the best reference for that is like Game of Thrones nowadays. Like, you know, every, everybody gets a, gets a shot to get killed. You usually just get the script, you know, you read through it. You just flip through it the first time just to make sure your name, you know, is, is at, the, uh, at the end of the episode. And then you go back and actually read it. Uh, and for me, I had that moment where uh, David Simon, you know, he comes, knocks on your trailer door. And, and you, you, know, you never want that knock on knock on your trailer. So he, he knocked on my door and basically said, look, Mike, we love you. Everybody loves you. But that's exactly why we have to kill you. And uh, Wallace has to go. And it was, a, it was a sad moment for me. At that point, it was just like, you know, me leaving my family. I just looked at everybody as my big brothers and, and sisters. And, and uh, I was like, man, this all has to stop. I can't. I'm not going to work anymore. But he's like, it'll be fine, everybody. You know, you'll, you'll be great. And then the, the death scene. That scene was uh, was very emotional. I remember my mom being on set. She was in Video Village, and you could just hear her sobbing and crying and stuff like that. It was, uh, it was pretty distracting. I was like, Ma, just please, Ma, somebody, somebody please just take her off set. Please take her off set. But uh, it was it was it was a good time looking back at it. Uh, Friday Night Lights. Friday Night Lights. So crazy, Peter Berg texted me this morning randomly. I had an audition, went in there. One of the things about Friday Night Lights and, and Peter Berg in his system, he loves improv. He loves improv and ad-libbing. And uh, I was in an audition room, and there was a scene where Vince Howard was supposed to be giving his, uh, his huddle, his, like, halftime huddle speech to his team and getting everybody, like, fired up and stuff like that. And I'm improv and I'm, I'm talking, I'm doing my thing or whatever the case may be. And, and Peter Berg just, like, throwing, like, throwing things at me, saying things and just, like, yelling at me, trying to get me, trying to get me motivated. And to the point where I just, like, instinctually just ran at him and just tackled him right there in the middle of the room. And I was like, all right, I either got the job or I'm getting kicked out of here. So, it, you know, you all know how that went. It doesn't matter how many games you win, how many touchdowns you have to roll, all they see is a bunch of dogs, coach. Everybody thinks they never see. You know, Vince Howard's one of those characters that leaves people talking. You know, what could have happened? Where did he go to school? Did he go pro? Did he not? Did he become a coach? You know, like, what was his future? I think, you know, Vince, you know, had the world at his fingertips. I think he really cared about his family. He obviously loved sports, very athletic, you know, found a father figure in Coach Taylor, made peace with his own dad. I decided to really, I mean, who knows? I, I would like to think he went to, you know, he went to college. You know, me personally, I'm a Michigan State fan, so Michigan State. Went to the league, Hall of Famer, Taylor, Hall of Famer. Fruitvale Station for me was, I guess, the first time that I ever had an opportunity to carry a film. I think inside, I, you know, as an actor at that age, was pretty insecure and, you know, not really confident in what the future was going to be. This was like my my opportunity to really like show what I can do. As a black man at the time, there was a lot of police shootings really coming to the forefront. 
and felt very frustrated and angry and didn't really have an outlet to say how I feel and express myself. And I just so happened, perfect timing, Ryan Coogler was uh, developing the script around uh, the shooting of Oscar Grant in his hometown. And it was the perfect connection. You know, I needed him at that time, and he needed me, whether we knew it or not. You know, I read that script. It was very emotional. Uh, I got a chance to meet him. Found a kinship, of, you know, a brotherhood. You know, we, we, we connected. We set out to tell that story, and we became very, very close. And, you know, the way that movie impacted, you know, my career, his career, uh, the lives of, you know, the Grant family, everybody in Oakland, across the country. And, you know, hopefully I would like to think around the world, got a chance to uh, experience a little bit of what Oscar Grant was like. For me, Creed, that was something that me and Ryan talked about before we shot one frame of Fruitvale Station. It was something that was in his head a long time ago. I remember him just asking me, like, hey, man, I'm doing this movie about, you know, Apollo Creed's son. Do you want to, you know, do you want to play him? And I was like, yeah, cool, let's do it, you know. We haven't shot one frame, one scene of the movie, but, it, you know, that's the type of relationship me and Ryan had. And uh, during that production, Ryan was running back and forth to, you know, MGM, Sly, you know, just trying to, you know, make it happen, trying to, you know, to convince Vince Sly to kind of come back in a row that he wasn't really planning on doing. And yeah, that process was uh, was another milestone moment for me. Uh, first time I was able to really tra change my body uh, like that, training, taking on an iconic role, you know, like uh, you know, playing Apollo Creed's son was, was really important as well. I want to say this was the first time I worked with Actor from the Wire since, since I left the show. Boys come in here, this is how they survive. They got to fight for life. Kill or be killed, people die in there. Your daddy died in the ring. And, uh, you know, working in another iconic franchise was a good time. It was fun. Yo! Of course. Why would I be expecting any... I have a lot of great relationships, and sometimes things just come randomly from different places. want to say Ava hit me up on this one. Might be wrong, but I think she hit me up and was just basically saying that she was directing this this video for them. And I was like, sure, let's do it. I mean, I'm, I'm one of those guys, and I get a phone call from somebody within the you know the film community that, that I'm cool with and trust. It's like, we're always down to collaborate on and be creative on certain things. And I, I heard her vision and the story that she wanted to tell, and I definitely wanted to be a part of it. My stash can't fit in the Steve Harvey suit. I'm clear why I'm here. And uh, it was incredible, you know, that, that album that they represent, what they were trying to say during that album, I think was very influential, and I was just pretty happy to be a part of it. Eric Killmonger for me was first time playing a villain. Brian just called me up and was like, hey man, I'm doing this thing. I think it would be a good look, you know, for you to, you know, kind of step out of uh, your comfort zone and do something different and you know, play a role that people haven't had, had a chance to see you play. And, you know, so we started talking about, you know, design, character design, you know, looks, you want to create an iconic hairstyle, something that would be in style, you know, in two years or something that we would kind of influence kids and, you know, people to want to kind of imitate. And it was a, a heavy role. It was a role that I didn't know how deep I was going to get into it until like, I think it was over. You know, you just gotta try to make decisions that feels right in the moment. You know, I didn't really have a, a set plan. It was just like day by day, really just like living in the moment and doing what feels right. Pretty isolated. I kind of stayed away from like, you know, people that I cared about and family for a long time because that was, I guess, one of the main things with Eric. He was like a really lonely person. So I tried to embody that as much as I could. Afterwards, it kind of stuck with me for a minute. 
know, there's no blueprint. There's no, there's no, um, you know, guidelines to like, you know, you know, getting into character and getting out or and what that looks like, what that feels like. So, just try to, you know, find my way through. You know, lean on people that's, you know, done it before in the past and just try to learn and grow from it. Tell me everything that happened. The first time I visited Death Row, I wasn't expecting to meet somebody the same age as me, from a neighborhood just like ours. This movie is extremely important. You know, Brian Stevenson is not a perfect person, but I say his life, but he's he's damn close. Uh, the guy has dedicated his life to a cause where few people can say that they they have you know such an important issue, such an important topic, you know, for this nation. And now he's he's taking it head on. I tried to be around him as much as possible. I tried to learn, you know, from him. I tried to get the essence of, of who he is. <laughs> At first, I didn't even know who he was, and I was really embarrassed at that uh so after i listened to his ted talk and really got a full scope of his work and, and and what he stood for it was intimidating but at the same time i felt responsible to kind of take this story and, and and share it with the world and try to get as many people as possible to see this film if you hear his words if you if you know his story and that doesn't move you that doesn't you know make you think or want to ask the right questions want to ask questions period i think that's a problem you know he he uh He's so such such a powerful speaker, and his presence is, is truly uh is truly incredible. Just try to embody that, you know. Working with Destin and Jamie and Bree, and, you know, all the producers, Gil and Asher, you know, we all collectively, you know, over the past couple of years, just trying to craft this story. You know, Just Mercy is such a dense book, with so much in there. We wanted to just pick through a few of the most memorable cases and moments throughout that book, and and make a movie that you know was well rounded that made people think that was an honest portrayal of his journey, and uh, hopefully we did that. I, you know, I've looked back 20 years, crazy to say 20 years, if anything, you bet on yourself, I bet on myself, and just continue just to, to, to work, you know, and, and try to grow and learn from each experience, and then, yeah, 20 years later, you know, production company, you know, I got, you know, a great team around me, projects that I'm extremely proud of, focused, and just can't wait to continue to grow and do projects that you guys are hopefully, uh, you know, proud of, too. If you wear glasses or contacts, you must see this. Okay, that was Michael B. Michael B. He played Killmonger in Black Panther. Michael B. Jordan is his name. And it's still the career timeline vanity YouTube series. Oh, they finished. Okay, let's see what else is up next. Criminologist reviews serial killers. Okay, here it is. Criminologist reviews serial killers, the movie, and they're going to review Anthony Hopkins in uh, Silence of the Lambs. So. Thank you for listening to this segment and hope to have another one with more good entertainment.